Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to be with you for this episode. My guest is Sam Vecini of The Athletic, longtime friend of the program, and in a rare turn, we're not going to spend most of the episode, though we do spend some of it on LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards. Talking about the draft, the 2020 draft, we're going to instead talk about his in-depth, just really impressive rookie-scale ranking series for The Athletic. He went through all 30 teams and then did a top 50 prospects ranking, which that culminated, that was pretty much this week. So I wanted to talk with him about that. And knowing the two of us, we cover a lot of interesting ground as well. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. You can use the Podcast One promo code when you sign up for a new account. And not only does that tell them that you came from us, but also you get a sign-up bonus, which is awesome. This episode runs long, as many Sam episodes are, runs about an hour 20. And for those of you who listen to this with more speakers, there there are some swears in this. So if that bothers you or if that changes the way you listen, I'm letting you know now. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on. Danny, I'm always glad to come on and chat. I mean, I told you before this podcast, I am as just as uh, I can remember. Uh, just, you know, obviously, anytime you write a project that is 
quite literally 250,000 words in length, you're going to be you're just going to feel it at the end of it. Right. And uh, I certainly am feeling it right now. And uh, yeah, we uh, we need uh, <laughs> we need to uh, we need to talk about this thing because there's a lot here. There is. And so for those who are unfamiliar with the project that Sam just completed, he did a over, I mean, over the course of the last calendar year is probably a good way to put it, right? Yeah, um, it was about nine months. Yeah. Was, um, yeah so you while put, also doing draft work and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, while, while also like having the rest of your job. It was uh, so right. to, to, to rank all of the teams based on the quality of, the, the, of their young talent and you used... Um, rookie scale contracts as the as the foundation there so that's the you know the guys first four years in the league and yeah and i think that's as as fair proxy as you can do like nate and i have done it under i think under 24 and various other things but i liked it doing it rookie scale also because that there is a specific determination you and i are both into team building for that and that means you know those players are under cost-controlled contracts and you know some of these guys have already signed extensions will not you know will, will not be rookie scale for very much longer but it is a good way of thinking about how a team's roster is kind of set up moving forward right like you know buddy healed turns 28 in december and is a part of this until uh this current season ends and then he'll drop off the rankings uh and then Someone like uh, Fred Van Vliet is not. And I think Fred is like 25 years old now mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, is certainly much closer to the prospect range. But because Fred went undrafted and uh, is currently in his fourth year, similar, similarly to Buddy, uh, because he was undrafted and signed a two year contract, he doesn't really qualify for the, you know, the prospect designation of it. But at some point, you have to cut it off, kind of. <laughs> like yeah. It's, uh, you have to find, like, a medium. And I went back and forth on on age stuff. And I was like, yeah, but if I do 24 or 25, you know, 25, whenever I started this pro- process, like, Giannis would have qualified. And it's like, Giannis is definitely not in the vein of what we're talking about here. Um Rookie scale guys are probably closer mm-hmm. in in stature was what I was thinking. So yeah, no, it's definitely definitely imperfect. I understand that, and you know there are enough people that have commented to me on it, uh, you know, telling me about the imperfections to where I totally get it, and I absolutely empathize with your pain on this. But uh, I, I had to figure out a way to do it somewhere. Right. And I mean, you started this, I think it was back in October, right? I mean, that was what the, what, yeah. and, and you, you're, it, was, it was, yeah, it was the first project I really started working on after I got back from my wedding and got back from my honeymoon. Um, so back in, back in September, even uh, yeah. I started writing it back in September. And, and there are a lot of teams, you know, more towards the bottom of the list who it's not, I mean, it, it's always bad because you, you would like to have even, you know, some successes drafting in the 20s or whatever. But, you know, like right. Houston, for example, like some of those – some of the people that would otherwise have been eligible for it, they traded those picks to get better and some of those trades worked out very well. It's just that – or the, the ones that where they did it to dump salary, you know, we can argue about how that went. It's not our – you know, that's that's about Tillman Fertitta's sure. checkbook, not about, not about anything else. And so I, I think that – 
so like there are teams that are towards the towards the bottom where it's let's call it justified and then there are teams that are towards the bottom where it's more concerning so like i would yeah. say, i would say like the wizards are more in that vein where it's like you know yeah they, they were they were good enough for a while where they you know that kind of depleted the stock a little bit but when you think about the even if they were full strength this year they're still a lower end eastern playoff eastern conference playoff team and right. so having a, a lack of young talent that could end up being a larger problem for them moving forward right yeah like the wizards are the wizards being as low as they are is definitely concerning just given where they are in their stage and given the fact that uh they seemingly want to try and compete a little bit next year just given that John Wall's coming back and that they're very gung ho on re-signing Davis Bertans uh like that's going to you know kind of resign them to the middle of the league again and uh, I don't know that I'd be particularly happy with uh my direction of my fan bit or my team if i was a wizards fan but uh you know the pistons i think are another team although the pistons will certainly get an influx with a top five pick coming up uh the wizards will certainly get an influx with a top 10 pick coming up in all likelihood um you know the, the trailblazers will uh not really get an influx necessarily because 14th overall pick is like not wildly valuable in this draft but um the, the Blazers are an interesting one because they should theoretically be competing with Dame, but are kind of a little bit of a mess in terms of what their future looks like. Like, there's a real case to me that if the Trailblazers come out next season and look pretty bad, uh, I, I would start to be really, really concerned. Yeah, Portland, yeah, and th- this is a difference between like rookie scale rankings and some sort of like future power rankings is you also have to think right. about the obligations that they have, the the way the roster is going to age. And I I'm I'm more of the mind, you know, that with Nurkic back and they also had some like Collins missing so much time and then, you know, hood with the Achilles, that's something you have to deal with moving forward because you don't know if somebody's going to recover completely right from that. So that's yep. a little. It's different than Collins, or you know, especially like especially if it's a bone issue rather than well, a, a yeah. Like the, the Bucks are a good example of this too. Like right now, the Bucks are fantastic, right? They have Giannis and Tedekumpo. Uh If Giannis leaves, they're in a very strange spot. Yes. Then. Well, and yeah, and because, they're well, yeah, because yeah. they're in the situation like the Thunder have been in a few other teams where. They've committed longer to players who are lower in the pecking order because that's how it has to work. You know, like you can't just right. you can't just be like, okay, Brooke Lopez, Chris Middleton, all your contracts expire when Giannis's does, so that if he's gone, we can clear out all our money. And sometimes those players, I'm not saying it's true in their case necessarily, but sometimes those players end up getting overpaid because they are more valuable to a good team than they are to another team. And so, yeah, they can end up in, in yeah. some really dicey – teams can end up in dicey situations. But the other part is that's the price you pay. You know, like that is – Right, but the, right, 100%. Like the Bucks are ecstatic right now. That exactly. They're going to have a two-year window to try and win a title, right? Like no one no one feels bad for the Bucks that they're down this low. And honestly, like if Chris Middleton has another good year next year and they lose Giannis in the offseason, like Chris Middleton's still going to have an immense amount of trade value. Like I'm already kind of scheming – if they lose Giannis, and I hope that they don't lose Giannis, to be honest. Like, I think it's great for the league to have Giannis in Milwaukee and competing with this roster for a title. Um, but, like, I'm already kind of scheming, like, how can I get Chris Middleton to New Orleans to, you know, go with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson yeah. in, like, a ridiculously modernized front court with 
Middleton taking on tough defensive assignments and being like an elite level shooter. So, yeah, no, I, I looking through the bottom of the list can be instructive just insofar as like you see a lot of teams that have gone for it or are going for it. And then you also see teams that have been in the past, in the case of Washington, I think that this has changed uh, a little bit over the course of the last year since Tommy Shepard took over, uh, that have in the past been poorly run. Yeah, and it can also be a good clarifying point for for teams. And so one that I've focused on a lot over the course of this year is the Oklahoma City Thunder. So the Thunder are a very good story overall if we're talking about, you know, like what happened. So they made the decision, and I would say the correct one considering the price that they got paid, to move on from both Paul George and Russell Westbrook, got an absolute haul for both of those guys, and still made the playoffs without it i mean that's not I, I, yeah they have clinched so we can i mean they're anyway that's that's all, all the yeah, they're in the playoffs yeah all the battling that's going on in the west is for the 18 which is another another thing that i find somewhat funny in all of this is that it's battling to be cannon fodder for the lakers but point notwithstanding and so oklahoma city has that but what i've been harping on i was working on their um their offseason preview a couple days ago which will be published at the athletic at some point is in their case, and this is different from some other teams, their success, other than Shea, who's wonderful, is largely being driven by players that are not going to be part of the next great Thunder team. They're part of the current very good yep. one. And so that leaves Sam Presti with a choice. It's not necessarily a choice where there is a a bad answer, though there I would say there's one that's more correct than the other, and that is okay, you can you can continue to be where you've been. And, you know, a lot of their players are under contract for at least one more year. Chris Paul, Stephen Adams, most notably. And their books get a lot better because some of the bad money's coming off and everything else. But there's also the challenge that if you just let this ride out, two different things are happening at the same time. One, you're still going to be relying on those players. And two, by being better, it's harder but not impossible to build the talent base for when those guys leave, whether that's through aging out of being what they are now or by contracts. And so Presti kind of has to choose between having a brighter present and a darker tomorrow or having a brighter tomorrow at the expense of breaking up one of the league's better stories. Yeah. I I mean, to me, like it's not really a tough choice. Like if I was them, I would be moving Chris Paul this off season. If I could get something real, Uh, Just because given Chris's age and given his propensity for soft tissue injuries, uh, by the way, I'm terrified for Chris Paul in this restart uh, in regard to soft tissue injuries. Um, Just given his propensity for those, I would think that right now is the peak of his value. Now, there has been some very real value to having him around Shea Alexander, to having him around – you know some of the other guys well, that they're Schroeder, trying to build. I mean, with. I think you can make an Schroeder, argument that Schroeder yeah. is the biggest beneficiary in terms of current, you know, on court stuff. Shea getting the mentorship and all that is very important. But for like the reason those that small lineup has worked so well is that Lou Dort and and Chris yep. Paul, depending on what the affiliate, depending on what the alignment is, those guys are taking on tough defensive assignments and that's leaving Shea and Schroeder most notably. Schroeder's usually getting the easiest cover of the perimeter players and that's what he should have because he's not that great of a defensive player. And he has made strides. Full full credit to him. And so like that's something that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle is players who make the lives of their teammates significantly easier in one way or another. 
Yeah, no question. And Chris Paul, for the longest portion of his career, like despite the reputation, has been one of those guys. Um, yeah, it's funny because me, though, like, he's he's difficult from a personality standpoint, but very not difficult most of the time from a playing standpoint. Right, because he's so good at everything. Like, <laughs> hot take, being good at everything helps teams on a basketball court. Yeah. Um, well, and, yeah, well, the no, other, the other like, part with Paul, and this is a huge consideration for a team like, let's say, the New York Knickerbockers, if they decide that they want to go more short-term, is... By the way, I don't hate that idea. I, I hate that I'm saying this, but I don't hate this idea for them to acquire him. Continue, though. It, they're... There is a rationale behind it. Um, I think there is also one behind bottoming out, unless they get like exactly the right guy this year. Anyway, but so the right. but the so Chris Paul, why OKC? The biggest reason why is that Chris Paul has a forty four point two million dollar player option for twenty one twenty two, and he stayed really healthy this year. And this is what you're getting at with the peak value is that the sticker shock on that is less now. I I could almost guarantee that the sticker shock on that is less during the 2020 offseason than it will be in the 2021 offseason. Like, that's just the way this yeah. works. He can't, you know, he stayed healthy. He was an integral part of this su- surprisingly successful team. And $44 million, especially if the cap stays the same or even if it goes down or wherever it goes from here, like, that is a ridiculous amount of money. And there's Chris Paul got closer to being worth his salary this year than I think any of us ever anticipated. And I've I've been a Chris Paul stand for such a hilariously long time. Still didn't see this coming. So if Sam Presti, you brought up the idea of like if they can get something for him, and I agree with that. I think that would be the ideal. But even if it's more like neutral value, I don't think that I would give up something material to to unload that salary because Oklahoma City. It's not like he tanks their books or anything like that. There's nothing that really gets created. But assuming teams think of him as like a neutral or a positive value, yeah, absolutely, I think that's the right call. Yeah, like if I was the Knicks and I could give up like the Clippers pick and a future first and like one of those future Dallas firsts for him – like yeah, I would probably they, be willing to do that. They might not even need to do they could also, you know, like I think Julius Randle could be interesting for the Thunder because he has that partial guarantee for 21-22. So if they want to get out of that, if it doesn't work out right. for Randle next year, they can. If it does, then they have him at a, at a price they can control. And the other huge reason why I, I think OKC should go in that direction is that they have this there's this kind of elephant in the room that I don't think anybody's talking about enough yet. Which is that? Yes, we we played a shortened season, and four teams—sorry, seven teams—in the West won at least forty games. There is a reasonable expectation that it's going the West to get is coming. it's going to get harder <laughs> to be good in the West. Like, yep. So a lot of the teams are good and should be, you know, that's health, not bullshit. Not These teams are coming like in the West. The, so, but like you look at the top. Okay, the Lakers, Clippers, and Nuggets. Health notwithstanding, you would assume that they will be better. They will be the same or, you know, they'll be the same next year or, or better, you know, depending on how it works out. The Jazz, probably same or better when you consider that they're not really losing anybody unless they want to. The Rockets, that depends a little bit on D'Antoni, but structurally, the Mavericks, age curve helps them. And then yep. you start to get into everywhere else. The Blazers will be healthier. The Pelicans, the Kings, maybe the Suns or the Wolves, and obviously the Warriors. And so 
Oklahoma City, like, if they have a slightly worse season, and considering how well things went for them this year, and yeah, maybe if they've been a little bit healthier, things could have gone a little bit better. But I could see Sam Presti seeing the writing on the wall and being like, hey, like it's if we kept it together and it doesn't work, we're going to regret that more than, you know, getting in, being a first round exit. I mean, and there's even yep. a chance that they win in the first round this year, depending on how these things break it, if they if it break exactly right for them. But I, I could I think Sam Presti is pragmatic enough. And also no one in current NBA front offices appreciate there are historically other ones like like Radarbach understands the importance of picking high than Sam Presti because they he built are like if you could go through like historic rookie scale power rankings there was a time when the Oklahoma City Thunder teams would they, they'd probably be in the off the top of my head in the top five to ten historically like at one point in time and all those guys other than Serge Ibaka were picked high so, and this is what I wanted to get to next with the uh, Thunder as well. So, Sam Presti is very, I think Sam Presti is very good um, in his job. Sam, I don't think Sam has done the best job of picking late in the draft. Agreed. Um, he has a type, you know, and that type doesn't always work. Yeah, he has a type, and it tends to be super athletes without a ton of skill. And guys with great character as well. Like, I, I want to mention that. Like, the Oklahoma City organization has really valued character guys. Uh, and I think that that's to their credit. Um, I would want as many shots as I could if I was Sam Presti at either being able to move up for higher picks, just given my track record, or I would want uh, as many bites at the apple with draft picks as I can. And, and the reason that I like the idea of Chris Paul to New York specifically is. They have these lower picks now. They have this Clippers pick and they have this Dallas pick or the upcoming Dallas picks that don't figure to be outside of the 20s, right? It's not like they're going to be losing a drastic amount of value if you're the Knicks here. Right. Um, second, though, I think that the development of RJ Barrett like kind of teeters right now <laughs> and putting RJ in the best, the absolute best plausible situation to succeed is so much more valuable for them than two first round picks in the twenties. Yeah. Uh, the, the counter, uh, RJ, the counter might be that it also makes the Knicks better in a way that weakens fu- their picks in future drafts. But I get where true. you're coming at it because well, putting our, yeah. so here, here's I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe you'll, you'll adopt this. You'll like this framing. When we so the the collaborative piece that came out on the Knicks with uh, Seth Partnow, David Dufour, and then the two of us, like one of the th- one of the things that that a couple of us talked about was like what they did. Need you guys around- bring up the Chris Paul thing because I'll be like for full transparency on these things. Like I'm sort of involved just in terms of like breaking down the draft stuff, but like yeah. not involved in like the discussion stuff. Yeah. For some reason, you got occupied in other things. Um, but <laughs> yeah. but the uh, but we didn't talk about it. We didn't we didn't really. I thought about going down that wormhole. But one of the things we did talk about where I could have brought in is like I brought up this idea that what the Knicks really need is they need guys who can credibly shoot and defend. And you normally you'd think, well, wing size guys, you know, three and D, all that archetype. Chris Paul does that too, but he also does almost everything else. <laughs> And so that right. would make things easier for RJ. Yeah, and like that's what you need. You need someone who can play both on and off ball next to RJ because RJ is going to handle the ball a lot. Like I think that he actually does have very real skills to handle like second side playmaking with some occasional like point duties. Um, but next to that guy, you want a guy who can handle those 
really you want RJ Barrett to be able to like lead the break, right? You don't want him to be able to play point guard in the half court. So you need someone who can play point guard next to him in the half court. Chris Paul is so exceptional at that because he is an excellent shooter, both in pull up and in catch and shoot situations. He is an excellent defender in the way that uh, hopefully RJ would just kind of pick up some tools of the trade and like learn. Uh, he's, I don't want to say that they're similar in terms of their strengths, but their strength itself is similar. Like Chris Paul and RJ Barrett are both very, very, very strong, solid players uh, in regard to just physical power that they play with. And I think that it would really help RJ to be able to learn from someone like a Chris Paul how to use his frame in a better way. Uh, Obviously, with RJ, like a lot of it's going to come down to his own personal development and growth. But anything that the Knicks can do to put him in the best possible uh, position to succeed and to put him into uh, the best developmental situation, I think, is the most important part of their rebuild outside of them potentially getting like LaMelo Ball this summer. Yeah, or, this or, fall. or potentially getting Cade Cunningham next year, and that's the interesting question. It's like right. basically, is yeah. RJ Barrett good enough to warrant that sacrifice? Like that's a a challenging a challenging question. But I right. wanted to get to a transition to a different thing, which is going back to OKC a little bit. I was thinking about it today um, in this this morning. I don't know if this is going to become a series. I kind of want it to in my brain, except that I'm working on two other thirty team series right now. Right of, of so a lot of times I get you know. Being in being in the in the vein that I'm in, get fans of teams that want to say like basically we should tear it down or we should do all this stuff and and I think that there is a so there there's the defining success is basically what I would def, what I would talk about the series and so there's the, the one part of it is like how good could you be if you wanted to be good and so that's so I was using like the Washington Wizards to be this was the team I was working on with this with this morning and so like the Wizards if they wanted to be good they could be you know pretty good I think it'd be hard unless they you know like to sacrifice enough to get to be like a a team that you would expect to win a, a playoff series in the East next year. They could be, you know, in a playoff series in the East. I expect that, actually. But then the counterpoint to this, and this is why where OKC is so fascinating, is, okay, let's say ownership management says, we're, you know, we're not where we want to be. Can you tear it down? And so there are some teams that they're kind of too good. So like Portland is a good example of this. Like Portland can't really pivot because they have Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. Even if they traded one of those guys, they'd still be too good to be terrible. And Lillard is one of the more challenging contracts to trade in the entire league. He actually technically can't be traded for a little while, but then that will ease up and then he can be be due to the rules of the Supermax. But, But Oklahoma City, if they wanted to be bad, it would not be a problem. Like Shea is Shea is a talented player and he's intriguing. He is not at this point good enough to be the best player on a really good team. Like that's he's just we're just not there yet. And I, I think Shea could end up being there in, in the future. But they you know then it, so if, if they theoretically moved on from Chris Paul and Stephen Adams, I think that's really all it would take. And Gallo, I guess like two of those three. Then your best players are Shea and whichever one of those players remains, if any of them do. And then, you know, like probably like Terrence Ferguson is on the short list of your best remaining players, Schroeder, presumably. And it's like, okay, then you're just not going to be very good. And that's fine. You know, like, so they can tear down. And I think there's, it's important to understand that distinction as well, because there's, and, and yeah, there are lots of reasons the season can fall apart. The Golden State Warriors are a great example of that. But what I'm talking about is just on talent. 
can you get to, can you get to a place even with lottery reform where you could reasonably expect to have a good shot of getting a top five pick? Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent right. And then how you go about building within that construct gets really tricky as well. Like, I, I don't know that I totally agree with the premise that like the Blazers, for instance, like the Blazers are a great example of this. Um, like you said, like the Blazers, I do think they could get pretty bad if they decide to trade Damian Lillard. Uh, I, I think Damian Lillard is such an absurd just force of will in regard to how he carries teams that uh, like a team like that could get bad if they took on most of their value in future facing assets. Right. Yeah. I guess, that's, rookies, I guess that's true. But I was take, just thinking about, you know, like, like first and second first round picks like, you could get bad enough, I think, to do this. Yeah, like, I, I think any team can get bad enough. Basically, I don't think it's that hard to tear it down. Well, it can, it can be in certain circumstances, but I think with Lillard, it's also are there how are teams, other teams, feeling about theoretically trading his count? Now he is one of the more interesting trade candidates. Like once he becomes eligible again, because Lillard, his supermax doesn't kick in. Like the the big pay bump doesn't kick in yeah. until twenty twenty one. So theoretically, it's a lot easier to match his salary if the Blazers wanted to move on, which I don't think they do, in next season, in the 2020-21 season, than it would be later on. Because even though that money's still on the books and everything like that, it's just it's just a lower number for matching salary. But I don't know, and, and Lord is... And also trading him on the early end, theoretically, were the Blazers so inclined, would be better because the, that team is going to get another good year of Damian Lillard. And we don't know where where the tide is going to turn for him. Maybe he ages super well, but I, I'm guessing he's not going to be worth $50 million in 2023. It's my instinct. Right. And so, yeah, that's... The, I mean, I, he might be in 2023, but like he's not going to be you know, in the last couple of years of that deal for sure. Right, right, right. So... Yeah, so I, I just think it's a good it's a good kind of framing to think about of like realistically, and you're right, you know, maybe if a team was more more zealous in it, but like especially if you have, you know, good young players, or if you have sometimes it can also be like you have a really good coach that like that's something that worries me a little bit yeah. about Portland doing that. It's like yeah, Portland will probably defend near the league average as long as they can get competent, you know, like big man defense and stuff like that. Their offense right. would go off a cliff, um, and so that would make things easier if they lost Dame and CJ and everything else. But there well, are, it's like what happened with Charlotte this year. Like, I, I think Jim Borrego's like a really, 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 really good coach, and like a lot of these guys developed, and they kind of went toward the middle of the league. When I mean, that team is more devoid of star power than any team in the league. I would agree. Yeah, it's been, and the Hornets, like, yeah, we're writing about them in two different fashions now. Like, they're they're among the least talented teams in the league, and even though they had a, like you know. Devontae Graham did well, and the and like Martin did yeah, pretty, like, like both the Martin twins I think did reasonably well, and, and, the, and they have, it's just they just don't have enough yet, and they'll get there, but not for a while. Well, the, the problem with them is that I actually think that like they've hit in their last two drafts like pretty substantially, like they've got Miles Bridges, Devontae Graham, PJ Washington, all of whom feature on my top fifty prospects page. They're all outside of the top twenty five, I believe, but. Like they do have talent for where they've picked. Like Miles Bridges was a good pick where they picked him. PJ Washington was unquestionably a good pick where they picked him. The problem is almost that in like, look, I'm not going to sit here and say that like the Michael Jordan owned Hornets have been a bastion of competence, right? 
But like their last few picks have been like their last two years, they've handled shit really competently outside of the Terry Rozier deal. So like full on competence in regard to like trying to win games and and taking players that are probably going to be a little bit better early in their careers, like PJ and miles, both of whom came in with NBA ready bodies. And we're just always going to be ready to succeed. Like you're almost a victim of your own, of your own competence sometimes. Like, does that even make sense? Like, I feel like it makes sense. It's just like, you know, it's almost sacrilegious to say in today's NBA. Huh? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a challenge. I, I've, I have so much trouble figuring them out. Like, yeah, I do too. Yeah. And, and, there's also like I, I think they have a good coach. I think that, like I said, they've done really well the last two years. And, and it's also like, I mean, another important part of all of these conversations, and you and I talk about it more openly than I think than I think a lot of people do, is you have to think about team building differently when you're an unlikely free agent destination than when you are. Yep. Like that's it's just you just have to approach differently. That that you know, like that's who you prioritize in free agency, how willing you are to take on multi-season contracts, everything else like that, because it's, you know, like them having $80 million in cap space in 2021 does not mean the same thing as the Knicks or right. a competently run organization in a major market. But it is, and the, the teams that embrace that, I think generally do better, but that doesn't mean cap space has no value it just means it has different value and i would argue less in most circumstances yeah it absolutely does and you know over the last few years a way to kind of work through that like as atlanta has taken advantage of so intelligently for instance with the alan crab deal taking him off brooklyn's hands is you've been able to essentially rent out your cap space at relatively cheap prices i think that because of the pandemic and because of, frankly, teams getting smarter about how other teams are operating within this and prices are going up, it's going to be harder for teams to rent out their cap space going forward and get the same value for it as we've seen in the past, at least. Like, there will still be, uh, you know, circumstances where a team just really has to get off fucking money. Like, Brooklyn had to get off of money last summer because they had to sign Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving because that's a thing that just rarely comes available. Yeah, or Miami. Miami last year. Right, right. Like, Miami last year really needed to do it, and I bet Miami, you know, is probably going to try and do something like that soon again. But I I don't think – and by the way, like, Miami does not have enough picks really to, like, pay teams. They're going to have to give up, like, actual players next uh, to induce teams to do this. But it's it's going to be harder, I think, for these small market teams to just pick up assets for renting out their cap space, which means I, I don't I think it's going to be harder for them to even uh, continue to build in such a coherent, competent manner. Like, I just wonder if we're getting to the point where a team like Charlotte has to, like, totally bottom out to get out of this middle stage. Like, I think that, you know, maybe Detroit is the better example of this. Like Detroit there, if Blake Griffin plays 50 healthy games next year and Derek Rose doesn't get dealt until the deadline next year, they're probably not going to be one of the five worst teams in the league. 
it would be very helpful for them in the way that their organization wants to build or their organization should want to build. I should say, Uh, I don't think we know how Troy Weaver wants to build this team yet. Um, it'd be very helpful for them to bottom out, like very, very helpful for them long term. And like, it's funny because I think that they might even realize that because they looked into moving Luke Kennard this past summer or this past spring. I'm sorry. Well, and also Uh, the Drummond trade. I mean, the Drummond trade was a, was a pretty clear indicator of, you know, they didn't remember they, we just brought up the idea of like whether Chris Paul, yeah, if you could get something for him, it's a no brainer, but maybe you do it if it's close to close to neutral value or anything like that. The Pistons traded Andre Drummond, their best healthy player, not their best player because Blake Griffin would be otherwise for, I'll be honest. I think Derek is better than he is. Um, Oh, Drummond, yeah, that's, I understand what you're saying. That's yeah. fair enough. Yeah, but okay, fine. Um, but trading Andre Drummond for nothing, for expiring contracts, was a really was a really bold decision, one that I supported at the time and continue to support now. Even though the Pistons, again, not a cap space destination, not a destination or anything like that, just because it helps clarify things and it helps put them in a very specific footing. And I think that footing is good for them. I also think they're going to trade Derek Rose. Like I think that they're going to. The other part of this, Dave DeFore brought this up in the uh, Knicks piece, is that there is a certain level of competence that it's actually good to have, even if you're a bad team, especially with lottery reform, where this isn't the process Sixers anymore, where, you know, winning winning 20 games, winning 25 games, like, really has the same type of benefit. There's actually kind of a middle ground that can be good, which is you're still bad, but you're at least, like, competent enough that you can evaluate your young players. And I think that's what you were getting at with Chris Paul in the Knicks, too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you need to find a way. And the problem with Detroit is right now is, like, they don't have an R.J. Barrett on their roster right. that they need to accentuate. Uh, honestly, unless they get LaMelo Ball in this draft, I don't know that they're going to get anyone. Maybe you could make a case for Anthony Edwards. Um, but like, I don't know if they're even going to get anyone in this upcoming draft when they have a top five pick in all likelihood um, that I'm like, yeah, you need to find a way to build around that guy. So maybe maybe the Pistons are the team. Like maybe the Pistons really do just like it had helped them to really, 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 really bottom out. Right. Plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first a message from Bet Online. There is no shortage of action going on with our exclusive partners, Bet Online, as sports are slowly making their way back with UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and soccer leading the way. Bet Online has all the best odds and lines for upcoming games and matches. And check it out. Sign up for a free account. And make sure to use the Podcast One promo code. It gives you a sign up bonus. Tells them that you came from us. And if you need more, Bet Online has simulated NBA, NFL, and UFC happening every day live for you to check out. And if you're looking for something other than sports, Bet Online also has hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So visit their website or use your mobile device and join now using that Podcast One promo code to receive your welcome bonus and start playing today at Bet Online. Your online wagering experts. Let's go to a a different part. Something that I've grappled with with the idea of something like rescale rankings, which is top end value versus depth. So the team that is the catalyst for me here is the Dallas Mavericks. Dallas Mavericks have Luka Doncic, your number one overall player. He was mine as well. I mean, he was an MVP candidate this year at age twenty one, yeah. and like you had Luka. And yeah, Zion. I, I think I I think I figured out that I would have voted him fifth or sixth for the MVP based off of the stoppage. I would have to look at it again. I think I might have him higher than that. There is an argument yeah. that he was the best offensive player in the league this year. 
and one player oh yeah one player can do more to shape a team's offense than defense in most schemes and most uh, that it just because of the nature of the sport um and so i think that but you know there are other great players and he's not like above Giannis or anything crazy like that but yeah i i think i might have had him you know it was third or fourth third third through fifth somewhere i haven't i would have to go back and look but at at you know 21 that's completely insane and there is certainly but so but when you think about Dallas for this where well, you know most of your rankings like most of the 31 pieces involved in this gigantic project were team based it's really him and not a whole heck of a lot else and that becomes a real challenge so it's like okay you have a potential MVP candidate but you know whether you want to go with like Sacramento they have De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald or Memphis which has this collection including John Morant like it is a really challenging conceptual question to grapple with yeah no it Absolutely is, and I don't wait. I'm sorry. What was well, I so, like totally so lost? How, how you? It's okay. How you square the individual versus the collective? So like a team, a team that has a lot of good players but doesn't necessarily have an MVP type of guy versus the Dallas right. Mavericks, which is a a rookie scale rankings of one, just number one. Yeah, like it's really hard to like. Basically, the way that I thought about it was. Would I trade an entire team's prospects for Luka Doncic? Basically, like we we can talk about Jalen Brunson mattering, and he does on some level, but like in the context of the league, sort of, but not like not a difference maker, difference maker. Um, but like with Dallas, like it came to would I move Luka Doncic for? De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Marvin Bagley, and Bogdan Bogdanovich? And my answer was no, I would not. I, I would not trade Luka Doncic for all that. Um, in the case of Atlanta, it was would I trade Trey Young, John Collins, Cam Reddish, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter for Luka Doncic? That's close. That's really, really, really close to me. Uh, I decided that I would not do that if I was Atlanta. But, like, just the idea of would I trade this one player for five guys that featured on my top uh, top prospects list, or my top 50 prospects, including uh, two in the top 20, one in the top five, like, the fact that I had to think about that says a lot about where Luke Doncic is in the league. Like, to me, there are really only three players that have a case for the number one spot. Um, one is Luca. One is Zion Williamson. If you think Zion is just going to go on and demolish the league, which based off of what we saw in his first 20 games, I think is a very real question that you have to ask. And then finally, Jason Tatum's really good now. <laughs> yeah. If, like, if, if like, Jason Tatum Jason, Tatum, Jason Tatum is the player whose interpretation was put in stasis at the weirdest time. So right. he had this just absolutely bonkers stretch before the hiatus. And we would have gotten another, first of all, another month, a month and a half of information in the regular season, but then, you know, going straight into a playoffs. 
And so we would have we would have known a lot more about whether this was real. And I mean, I was I remember I recorded with Tim Bontemps basically the day after the leak, two days after the leak shut down, and we we did a like kind of a time capsule podcast. And one of the things we talked about a lot was like what is going on with Jason Tatum, and like if the pull up shooting is for real, then he is a very different player, and then he could be, and especially when you consider that he's a an active and a talented help defender. And so he's bringing value on that end of the floor as well. Like then you're starting to talk about, I, I don't think of him as necessarily like an, from what I saw, like a clear cut MVP candidate, but you're starting to get to the point where I won't scoff at you for saying it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't think that Jason is an MVP candidate this year. If you told me he was an MVP candidate next year. No, that's what I'm saying. Like the, 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 the like, could go that way. It is very, very ridiculous how good he is. Like the pull-up shooting, like you mentioned, like the the number that I grabbed from Tatum was, uh, let me pull it up real quick. Over his last 23 games, he averaged 27.9, 7.3, and 3.1. He hit 49% from the field and 45 from three uh, on nearly eight three-point attempts a game, by the way. Uh, so he was basically like Duncan fucking Robinson uh, while taking on harder shots on harder shots. Like, what are we doing here um, from mid January onward? Jason Tatum made more pull up threes than any player in the NBA, not named James Harden or Damian Lillard. Like, it, it's not just that he was making pull up threes. It's that this guy is an impossible problem for defenses to solve if he's making them at volume in the way that he did. Uh, and by the way, like his full season numbers, they're like very real in terms of pull-up numbers. He finished 13th in the league overall, and among wings, uh, his efficiency on pull-up jumpers was second only behind Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, uh, He is an impossible problem for defenses to solve right now. And oh yeah, he might be one of the 10 best like help defenders in the NBA on the wing, especially, but like even overall, he is a monstrous help defender. Right. And the big question that I had with Tatum and why I was lower on him than a lot of people before this stretch was wondering how a normal progression, how that would apply to a really good team. Like basically like, can he be the best player on a successful offense? And before he became the guy that he was for the last month plus of the season, I thought that that, that that general line of thinking was pretty sound. He's not the greatest guy at creating seams for others, and he, you know, he's very comfortable taking tough shots. Now, if he makes all of those shots, then it becomes a very different thing. And that's where we're kind of getting at with Tatum. It's like, and that's also, to an extent, the same idea that I find so fascinating with Zion, which is that a lot of times we spend, you know, part of being analysts, whether we're talking draft guys or we're talking current NBA players, is you're trying to read trend lines and you're using you're using all of the context of everything else to evaluate. Every so often in any sport, but I think basketball is a great example of this, there are players who just go their own path and don't have a precedent. And that doesn't always mean that it works. There are lots of times when it doesn't. But you have to – so what that generally leads to for me is a lot of skepticism that eventually can be won over. And like, you know, with, with Zion, it's like, well, okay, you know, we'd, we haven't really seen – there's some parallels with Anthony Davis, the last guy the Pelicans streaked number one. Of like, we haven't really seen big men who don't – who the offense doesn't run through them really make an unstoppable offense. Like that's just not something we really have seen in the modern era. But 
New Orleans was getting more towards that point with Zion on the floor. And when you think about how much they, you know, David Griffin can optimize their talent around that and, and Gentry, if he's still the coach and everything else. And so I think that it's, it's important to not rush to praise and to, to do all that stuff too early because there are a lot of unusual players that don't succeed. But you always have to be ready to say, okay, it just works for this guy and we just have to acknowledge it now. Yeah, in Zion's case, I'm just like, yeah, this guy is a total anomaly in every way until he gets hurt. <laughs> I mean, he he was averaging 26 points a game in his last 11 games as a 19-year-old in the NBA and shooting 60% from the field doing it. And not hitting, uh, and not hitting that many jump shots. Like he was, you know, he did in that no. first game with San Antonio and then that became like the anomaly. Yeah. Like, I was trying to explain to people, they were like, yeah, like, this bully ball stuff won't work. No, he is literally the best athlete in the NBA. Like, <laughs> it's going to work. It won't, and it won't the strongest work, player it won't in the work NBA. for other people, but it might work for him. Right. Like, like it works for Giannis and like it worked for Shaq. And they're very different players, right? Because they're both, like, 6'11". But it's going to work for Zion well, in that the, same the, way. The analogy might also be LeBron in that like LeBron was another kind of weird guy to peg with some of this stuff because he was, you know, like t- there had been tall ball handlers in the league. I mean, Magic Johnson and lots of other guys. But LeBron was just his, his – for LeBron, I think the story that is, is a combination of speed and strength. And so it was like right. – Okay. And feel like and LeBron feel. is like, I don't think Zion's going to be LeBron. Just no, no, because, no. Like, I, don't, I don't either. No. And I know you're not saying yeah. that. Yeah. But, but like it's with Zion, like Zion has good feel for the game and, and like he's an underrated passer and I think he's an underrated ball handler. Like LeBron was like a freaking point guard. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so what, what you run into with some of those guys is that it's like, yeah, okay. Most players who, are this who are this big and aren't necessarily going to be great at defense. They they don't work out, but there are exceptions that prove the rule, and it's it's a strength of the sport of basketball that that is true. That even in a league of the best players in the world, there are players who the other ones can't stop or can't really yep. do anything about, and that creates issues. And Luca's another even the transcendent have transcendent among them. Yes, exactly, and I mean I think Kawhi is another example of that. Like. Yeah, it's true, you know, mid-range dominant game and somebody who's not, you know, who doesn't create seams in the same way as as a lot of other modern dominant players, that doesn't usually work. But Kawhi Leonard is so insanely strong physically and can't be moved and can just get to where he wants and knows that if he gets to where he wants, he can hit the shot. You know, there's that's sort of a parallel with Kevin Durant. It's like, they're, they're, it's not that he's necessarily unstoppable like on, in total, but he has certain things that you really can't counter and has developed enough that when you try, when you sell out to take that away, he can make you pay for it. And so they're, you know, they're, Kawhi is in many ways more traditional because of the, like his defensive chops and other things. But it's like the it, the more you really think about it, especially in the modern era where they're not bigs, they are they're all different in ways that I think are fascinating. Yeah, and when trying to ter- to determine who these transcendent guys are going to be, and like with Kawhi, for instance, like Kawhi, the, the thing with him is just the physical strength combined with the body control, right? Like, Kawhi is just stronger than everyone. And he has these enormous hands to where, like, he can just palm the ball and put it wherever he wants. And, um, you know, is just so mentally 
you know, engaged at all times in basketball games. Like he's, he, he's a joke. So like finding out these, um, finding out these mental, uh, ticks that make guys work as well is essentially important. And with Tatum, like that, that's kind of what I always talked about with him. And like, I was always an enormous Jason fan. I had him at number two on my board behind Markel in the year that everyone had Markel there. Um, it was wrong, but what can you do? But the thing with Jason was like, he was always going to work at it. Like you never had to worry about that. And he was always going to have the mentality, but he was just not physically super strong. You look at what his body has become. He's like, He's not like Kawhi jacked or anything now. He's pretty big though now. Yeah, he is. And and also like an under an underrated part of Kawhi's progression and this is true to a degree with Jason Tatum as well is the skill development that is that really lays the lays the foundation for it. So that Kawhi getting a better handle, becoming a better passer, those those made it harder to stop him as well because it made it harder to get the ball, even though his gigantic hands do, do a lot of that work too, but also for him to get to his spots. And all of those things, LeBron had a lot of skill development that went along the way. Of course, Steph Curry did too. A very different kind of potential unguardable strength is a guy that you know I, Nate and I disagreed a little bit when we did our prospect rankings on him is Ja Morant. And when I watch Ja, he's a player who's so Yeah, where did fast. you guys have Ja? Nate had Ja, I think, fourth, and I had him around where you did at seventh. And yeah, what, so what, I'm trying to think. Would you guys have had uh, – you probably would have included everyone above him too. Yeah, I think we did. I think we did include everybody yeah. above him. And I think that – yeah, because, well, no, uh, you had – no, you had Siakam eighth. So, yeah, so because yep. he's older. But Ja, he's fast for fast guys. And, that, and especially yep. when he has the handle that he does and he's a good passer, it's like – that can be something too. It doesn't just have to be you're bigger and stronger, though that is often the way it goes. And it, or you or you know, like you move well, quick twitch muscle, all that type of stuff. And Jaws crazy. Well, it's that. It's the fact that he's you know one of the let, let's let's ballpark it and say three fastest players in the NBA. Like he might be the fastest player in the NBA, but like let's even conservatively call him one of the three fastest. The problem with Jaw that he presents is that not only is he one of the fastest players in the NBA. He can play at his top speed more often than anyone else can play at in the NBA because of his basketball IQ, because of his quick twitch reaction. Like nobody in the league makes as many jump passes as Morant does. Right. And like that's something that typically gets drilled out of players because it's a typically a really fucking bad idea to like leave your feet before you know what you're going to do. But in Jaw's case, it's a really great way for him to draw defenders to him because his vision and peripheral vision and his basketball IQ and his feel for where the defense is coming from, it's so strong that he knows exactly where everyone is coming from. So it's actually a great way for him to just draw defenders near him is when he jumps because everyone over the past 20 to 35 years of their life has been drilled. Do not jump. Uh, unless you know what you're doing, do not jump unless you're going to shoot. Do not jump unless you're you know exactly where you're going to go with the pass. With Morant, like it's that he's fast and that he is just fucking exceptional when it comes to making decisions on the fly. He also get it seems to me like he gets a little bit more hang time, so he has more time to make that decision. Hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, Morant's absolutely fascinating, and I'm you know like the I think. 
we've had the Luca Trey naturally. We've had that discussion a lot because those guys were traded for each other, and that will continue. And I mean, there is a chance that Luca pushes hard enough that it's not really a discussion anymore. But then you also get into the extra pick that Dallas gave up and everything else. But I think it might end up becoming a Jatre discussion as well, which is really interesting because those they're both really exciting, they're both fun to watch, but they bring different. Like Jaw is in many ways the he's the more traditional t- type of dominant point guard, not with the size like a, like a Magic or anything, but being faster versus being such a great shooter, which is more of a modern vintage thing for an elite point guard. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that Trey and Jaw is going to be the conversation going forward uh to be honest like luca luca plays a different position they do he's just surpassed them as well um well and it's it's, it's entirely possible that luca surpassed them in a way that they can't replicate like it is i was getting i was getting to this with uh something was talking about we know like with luca and stuff it's like luca Doncic just let's 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 treat it as if the hiatus the hiatus season is complete Luka Doncic just had a better season than almost every drafted player could ever have. Like, not yes. will, could. And that that's an important part of this. It's like, like you know, like, it's, there are players who, you know, like, Ja, I love his upside, and, and, and Trey, and, you know, Ben Simmons, who you, who you talked a lot about in the, in the prospect rankings. Like, I, I think Ja Moran is going to lead the league in assists at some point in I his life. So like, But that doesn't ja mean he'll Morant. have a better year than Luka just, just had. Yeah, I mean... John Morant would have to hit his ceiling to be a top five MVP candidate. Um, Luka Doncic just did it at 21, and I'm pretty skeptical that Ja gets there. And like, whenever I like, I feel like, well, I went on like a Memphis Grizzlies podcast with Joe Mullinax, and or no, 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 it wasn't the Grizzlies, it was uh, the Kings. And I was like, yeah, like De'Aaron Fox, like he's a really good franchise player, but I don't really think he's, um, you know, the best player on a title team. And he was like, and the question was like, how do you think that De'Aaron can get there to where he can be the best player on a title team? And I was just like, I don't really think he can, to be honest. I like, I, I think that like De'Aaron's a great player, and the Kings should be ecstatic to have him, and they should max him. Like, I am all in on De'Aaron Fox being like a top five, top six point guard in the NBA and making multiple All Star teams. Probably not going to be the best player on a title team because they're like seven guys in the NBA at one time to where that's going to be the case. And that might even be four guys too many. Yeah, it might be. And it's, it's something that I've been fascinated with for a long time. And actually, yeah, it's a really interesting, really interesting idea. Do you want to do a little LaMelo ball? Yeah, let's do it. I'm very interested because now you, I saw you and Nate, I haven't listened to it yet, but you, you and Nate went for like 45 minutes on LaMelo. We did. And it's so, Lamelo is a really he's a really challenging player to evaluate. One, the film on him is bizarre because it's like you know the the thirteen games he played for the Hawks in the NBL, and then you know Chino Hills. Then I, I can't even I don't even know if the like the Lithuanian stuff where that all fits in with everything, but it's not super useful for what yeah. it's worth because. Yeah. A lot of like the time where he played heavy heavy minutes was were the games where it was like the big baller brand challenge and right. it was all bullshit. Exactly. Yeah, so no. And so there is there is a lot there's a lot in there that is concerning. You know, like his uh, 
his he get kind of, he gets he doesn't I talked about this a little bit with Nate that he he doesn't get tunnel vision it's one of my favorite Lamelo Ball characteristics he doesn't get tunnel vision on drives but he does on pull ups and there are times where he's just like I want to pull up and he just does it some of that is he's an eighteen year old that happens you know like and so you wonder if that's going to correct itself but what he does well is basically unteachable and if I have to bet. Like in especially in this class where it's just not an inspiring group, it would be very different and to go through to like you know like Nate did this a little bit. We could do it in a future podcast of like comparing him to. Let's use the term primary bell handler like I do, so they don't have to just defend ones because I don't know if Lamelo is going to. But like he's not like the best point guard prospect I've ever seen or anything really like that. But the amount of people, no, like he's not even the prospect that John ja Morant was last correct. year. I don't think, for correct, correct, yeah, and so but. His passing vision, his understanding of the game, like a, a, a phrase that, uh, like a word that I've started using more is cadence. Like his understanding of the rhythm of basketball is yep. so unusual. And yep. Lonzo, like I'd say it's better than Lonzo's was at this point in his development. And it's, it's special. So, yeah, so I, I don't think the comparison to LaMelo is Lonzo. And the reason for that is I always kind of thought that I thought Lonzo had a chance to play point guard, but I always thought he'd be best probably playing in the half court as like a secondary ball handler type. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree with that. And the reason for that is the handle. His handle has always been pretty high. Uh, it's always been like he can create space going backward, but not forward. Lamelo can actually create space going backward and forward, which means that unlike Lonzo, who plays exceptionally unselfishly and is one of the best passers in the NBA, LaMelo can create passing angles that Lonzo can't create himself. He can warp the floor with his ball handling ability uh, and his ability to break down defenders and force help to him in a way that Lonzo can't. And I think that that's why he looks better all the time or, you know, looks like a quote unquote better passer than Lonzo. I think it's more because of his ball handling ability than even like his passing ability. Like, I think Lonzo is one of the absolute best passers I've ever seen in my life. He just can't create the pass that he need, the passes he needs. You know, that's why he's so good in transition is because those those are available right. to him by virtue of circumstance, as opposed to needing to be created by Lonzo. Yeah, that's that's a great. So, who would your comp be? <sighs> I, I there's have, not really anyone like him. I don't. Think. I, I think like, there's, and that's there's like a little kind bit of, a of like out. a I get that, a but, taller yeah. Trey Young who can't shoot as well. Like, there's a part of there's so there's a yeah. Part, like there's a there's a similarity in mentality um at beyond the arc between La, between Lamelo and Trey, but Trey Young is way better at the small guy stuff, you know, like getting fou- knowing how to how to get bait refs into calls and all that. Also, Lamelo has way better defensive potential, but it's yeah, I, I think that he's Lamelo is just such a fascinating player because I think that a lot of the a lot of the like kind of judgment more things that he does wrong, you know, like his shot selection. Like there, he takes a lot of bad shots, and they look terrible because they're the high arcing, you know, weird looking three pointers. And when those don't go in, it looks terrible. And that was one of the big concerns with Trey, especially those yep. times at Oklahoma when they weren't going in. It's like you can imagine how infuriating it would be to be his coach or teammate. And when those when those are going in twenty eight percent of the time or thirty one percent of the time, it, it it's a big problem. But 
for me, when a player with the apparent basketball IQ of LaMelo Ball is put in a circumstance and also gets the, you know, passage of time, maturity, all that type of stuff to be like, this is going to hurt the team. And we know that he's a smart basketball player because you see it in all the other elements of his game. I think that those things are going to sort themselves out. Like the, if you were to have me bet who's going to cut out the worst shots in the repertoire, LaMelo Ball or Anthony Edwards, I'm going to say LaMelo Ball because you see his judgment in other forms and it's pretty good. So like, it seems like it to me, it's a, a, it's no guarantee, but it's, it's an easier through line to say, okay, like this is bad. You need to know that this is bad. And he thinks like he thinks like a point guard. He thinks like a distributor uh, enough of the time that I think you can get that out of him. And the other part of that that I think is is really interesting with Lamelo is that he doesn't play with Lonzo's motor defensively. That's also why like there are parts of the time that I've thought of, I thought of Rubio as a comp for Lamelo, especially if the jump shot doesn't work. But Rubio was, was always more tenacious as a defender than Lamelo was. But Lamelo Ball is 18 years old and. He, you know, potentially could, especially if he takes on a lighter offensive load at some point, you know, if he's just not jacking up as many shots as he did in the NBL, I could see him, you know, like the comparison I made was to Steph Curry, where Steph Curry is not a great defender, but Steph Curry is very rarely the reason why the Warriors defense gets beat. And if LaMelo Ball can reach that level, it's not that high a bar, but it is a higher bar than I expect for Trey Young, let's say. If he can reach that point, then it's it's a it's a different conversation too in terms of his value to a team. So, a lot of people have asked me this question on what I think the comp is to Lamelo, and I think I think that my best answer, and it's not like a good answer, but I think it's my best answer is if you took Rajon Rondo, made him five inches taller, and then gave him like Russell Westbrook scoring like mentality and instincts. Or alternatively, you could say took Rajon Rondo made him five inches taller and had him play youth basketball at Chino Hills. Yeah. uh, Yeah, sure. But like, I I think that's actually like a pretty reasonable way to put it. Um, But with me, it's more about the shot selection is still really bad because I think he's been wired from a young age to be a scorer when and that's because Lonzo was the oldest and played point guard and you know often you know everyone's seen the videos of LaMelo when he was like a five foot nine 14 year old jacking up you know fucking 35 footers right um he was always that guy he was always the two guard but his best skills over his years have become distributing, passing, uh, making plays for his teammates. And I think that he is still excising some of that, like some of those bad pull-up instincts from his game. And it's going to take some time, but by the time he's like 24 and has been in the NBA for four years, I think it has a shot to be really, 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 really good. Really good. And that gets at a an important idea that can sometimes be underappreciated, which is we, every player improves a lot. And, and the, the differing amounts, I mean, you could draw the more extremes, like Draymond Green is a significantly better basketball player now than he was when he came out of Michigan State. And he was pretty polished when he came out. It's just that, you know, there are a lot of elements that he had to improve on. Every player, LeBron, is significantly better than he was at St. Vincent, St. Mary's, everything like that. But something that I've gotten a little bit more 
attuned to in the last few years is what improvements do you need to make and is there a reason to believe that those could be coming? You know, so a lot of times it gets penciled, oh, he has to become a better shooter, that's fine. Well, okay, is there is there what in their profile makes you think that? Are they a hard worker? Do they shoot free throws well? You know, like, is there is there something there? And with Lamelo, I think kind of what you're getting at too is that the mental side of it, it it seems it seems plausible, not definite, not definite, not at all, but it it is there, and I think that's what makes him what makes him so compelling to me. The other part, and I I, I wax poetic about this a little bit on on Dunked On, so you can you can hear it there too if you want. Is this you and I have talked a lot about positional valuing over the, over the last couple of years? It's something you and I both have a real passion for, and. It became a discussion about the floor. And so for me, this is one of the most intriguing differences between LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards. Both players who have significant bust potential if we're talking about performance relative to the draft pick. I think that's completely true. However, to me, LaMelo Ball, if he's a capable passer, works hard in transition, you know, makes, you know, does those sorts of things is, you know, not horrendous on defense. You can get 20 decent minutes out of that player, and he can be a second unit guy who, like, if things are going well, he plays a little bit with the starters. You know, like, that is, it's not his worst case scenario, but if we're talking, like, 25th percentile scenario, still a lot of, still helps a team there. You know, still is a, still is an NBA player for eight to 10 years, probably. And there is a scenario where Anthony Edwards, it just, it doesn't work, and that you can't, there isn't that fallback. You know, like there isn't a player that is below a certain threshold who does what Anthony Edwards does, just isn't really valuable to a team. And so I, I like drafting more an expected value in ceiling than floor, but that is something that if I had the number one pick, I would feel better about is that, yes, you're taking you're taking a player number one who you're not sure is going to be a starter. That's true in this draft of anybody, but at least you're probably getting something with him. And you're probably getting something right away. Like, I would let LaMelo Ball run my, you know, like at bare minimum, even on a good team, have him, like, be the second unit initiator. And especially if you could play him with a competent hand to, like, kind of help out. Yeah, I'm on board right now. So then, and you think that he's going to get a lot better. He's 18 now, turns 19, really, I think right around the start of next season. I'm terrified by Anthony Edwards, both, like, drafting him and him not figuring out that he has to play hard all the time. Uh and not drafting him and him turning into like, you know, Victor Oladipo, but stronger. Like both of those outcomes terrify me in every single way. That's a conversation for another day. Yeah, um, I, years ago I said, and I ended up, I think I was wrong on this. I said that Dante Exum was a, was a prospect who would get a GM fired either by passing on him or drafting him. I don't think that happened partially because Dennis Lindsay got does such a damn good job that that wasn't a problem. Yeah, Lindsay's really good. And because Exum ended up being more a victim of circumstance than anything else, right. you know, like he if he had been healthy, he could have looked good enough, you know, like that that created more than enough plausible deniability because there were some real flashes when he was healthy in those early years that that he was intriguing. I, I still don't know if it would have worked right. the way that I thought it might, but Edwards is probably the next of those guys where it's you don't know which way it's going to go, and there's so much variance that it's just terrifying. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm terrified by Anthony <laughs> Edwards, um, and I agree with you that I think LaMelo's floor is a little bit higher. Uh, I actually agree with you on what the floor is as well. Like you you mentioned, like the idea of a guy running a second unit. Like his floor is like what Rajon Rondo is now, basically, I think. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like maybe a couple years ago before he was like 
almost unplayable. But yeah, like I think it's like maybe his floor is like maybe Rajon Rondo in that Bulls year. Yeah, or maybe the Pelicans year. Yeah, no, right. That's a good. That's a better. That's a better way to put it. Yeah, um, like I think that's the floor for him, where he's not like a wildly valuable player, but is a good player. Um, Edwards, you could sell me anything, and I would say sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm. That's nothing to say that like I think Anthony Edwards is a bad prospect. I think he has as much upside as anyone not named Lamelo Ball in the draft. He is so physically gifted that it is outrageous but oh man that is a that is one that i would not want to have my name tied to because i passed on him or because i took him absolutely well we'll talk about the draft of course again later on hold on hold on hold on hold on Uh, what do you think of lamella ball shooting like you kind of mentioned like the ideas of lamella's shooting i don't think it's broken Um, yeah, uh, I think I, I agree think that you. so um, the I, I'm encouraged that his free throw shooting isn't terrible. I think that mechanically it's more it's closer to something that you can work with than what Lonzo's was. And he's good enough at other parts of his game that I can imagine, especially I, I think if you you know sort of like, you know, what happened with Lonzo Ball, if you take him high enough and teams are competently run enough now that you spend the money to bring in the closest thing you can get to Fred Vinson. It's also why I'd love for New Orleans to somehow get the number one pick so they could get LaMelo. Not <laughs> so he could play with his brother, but so that he could have access to Fred Vinson. Of, or Chip Anglin, or you know, any of these highly regarded shooting co- shooting doctors, is because I, I don't think it's that far away, but that is mandatory if he's going to become more than just like an okay starter. But I don't, I don't think that it's, I don't watch his jump shot and think, oh no, like I have for certain other guys in the past. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, the thing that gives me a lot of hope is like he has good touch on floaters. Yeah, uh, he, that floater, the floater that he throws from behind the free throw line is one of the weirdest shots I've ever seen in my life. But it kind oh, of works. Yeah. yeah, everything he does is super weird. By the way, Nico Mannion does some of that uh, floater behind the free throw line stuff and uh, looks just as weird as Lamelo's. I will give him that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the case of... Lamelo shot. I think there is real touch there. I think he just needs to get stronger. Um, yeah, that'll help his finishing a lot too. It'll help his finishing a lot too. Finishing. Actually, I'm a little bit more worried about the finishing. Um, not than the jump shot, but I am worried about the finishing. I should say, uh, the finishing concerns me, if only because he's not super long, and he does have like a tendency to short arm things. So I do just really hope that uh, his body control and his strength and his ability to embrace contact uh, continues to improve with age. But the jumper, I don't think it's broken. I think as he gets stronger, he's going to be able to have a stronger base. Mm-hmm. He's going to be able to have more consistent footwork going into the jump shot because he'll be able to like just kind of run out games more, right? So I'm not quite as concerned about the jump shot as some while still noting that it's a very real thing that needs to be figured out. Another thing that both Ball brothers, sorry to Leangelo, um, that they need, that they, that they have in their back pocket that is, I think, more useful for LaMelo than for Lonzo is the innate nature of defending, which is when a person with the ball in their hands drives the lane, 
defenders generally react to that. And I think they might react too hard to LaMelo because he's not a great finisher right now. But if they react and create a seam to pass, LaMelo's going to find that pass. And why I like that better for LaMelo than for Lonzo is because LaMelo's handle is better and teams are going to respect his jump shot more as a pull-up player because Lonzo doesn't really do that, especially in one direction. And so I think that he will get... There will be I, I, the analogy I've used here is Draymond Green because Draymond, especially in the twenty in the twenty fifteen finals, like the Cavs played him to shoot this crappy runner he was never going to shoot, and he was lobbing it to whoever the center was at the time. There were like four different ones on that team, and Lamelo, Festus Festus was one of them, and they will uh, and and so players like Lamelo will always benefit from that because if you see somebody going down the lane, the instinct is that's my priority. And so when players step up, he did such a beautiful job of finding those passers this year. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with that on LaMelo. Um, I think he's a really, really bad defender right now. Um, yeah, he, I, yeah, I totally he, get what you're saying with the instincts, and I, I think you're right. Like, he does well, and he, he should moments. not He should not defend point guards in the NBA because he does not get around screens to save his life. Like, he, he doesn't gets, get around gets, screens to save his life. He gets a lot. Has atrocious fundamentals when it comes to closing out on shooters um, does not have a strong defensive stance. Like he's really bad on defense. <laughs> like it's just people have been like trying to make the case to me that like, he's not a disaster on defense. I'm like, look, I get where you're coming from with the instincts. Uh, I do think that there's some of that there, but it's going to be ugly early on defensively. Like it's going to be like, I think Colin Sexton ugly early on defensively, mm-hmm. but they're, Unlike Colin, who's just like a tryhard and, you know, might not necessarily have the best instincts. Um, Lamelo has the instincts to improve as long as the effort improves. Yeah, I, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. Anything else you want to say on Lamelo Edwards? Anything you have an open for him? The Anthony Edwards stuff is just going to be way too, um, way too complicated for this. And it's going to take um, years too. Like that's that it's going to be so frustrating with Edwards because I'm going to want to see where it yeah. goes. Yeah. Um, I just want to shout out Duncan Robinson because Duncan Robinson was the best shooter in the NBA this year. And that's the funniest thing in the world to me. He, he, he was incredible. And he was literally the best shooter in the NBA this season. And, uh, and so Miami Heat, this is an underrated, kind of an underrated story due to the virtue of their um, ability to find young players, though they didn't find Derek Jones in the same way they found um, Duncan Robinson. They have all these like unusual, unrestricted free agents over the next couple of years. And Duncan Robinson might be, or no, he's going to be restricted. Never mind. Oh, that would have Derek Jones. Duncan will be restricted. Duncan will be restricted. So yeah, they'll benefit from that as long as Mickey Harrison is willing to spend a lot of money. I mean, like Duncan. That's that's Duncan Robinson was at Williams College in Massachusetts, like in D three, I think it was. Um, Never won when he transferred to Michigan. He played there two years. Didn't average double figures. Never won all Big Ten honors. He's literally the best shooter on planet Earth right now because Stephen Curry is injured. Like, and because Clay Thompson's injured. It is, his story is maybe my favorite story in the NBA in the last decade. Like, it's up there. It, it, the it's fact absolutely that this wild. dude, yeah, the fact that this dude is as good as he is, um, 
and has stuck with it in the way that he has. Like this is all this is a credit to like Miami. Don't get me wrong; they have one of the best development staffs in the league. But like this is a credit to him more than anything. Like that guy is that guy stuck with it, and instead of trying to go overseas and immediately become like a useful uh, European player, he went to the G League, didn't make much money last year, and just that man went for it. Shout out Duncan Robinson, man. I, I, I had to rank him in my top 50. I was like, this guy is unbelievable. He is literally the best shooter in the NBA in 2019-2020. Absolutely. And, and he, he is a weapon offensively that good teams will be able to use well, and I think Miami could be one of those teams. And he uh, his restricted free agency in 2021 is going to be fascinating because yep. usually it's like part of it is going to swing based on how Miami's season goes next year. Like, will the will the the like the dumb trendy money go after him? Like, that's going to actually raise his price a lot more. If if you can get you know if he can be get a, a team that actually has more money and is poorly run on board, but he's going to you know there will be there are going to be some offers there. Duncan Robinson this year. This comes from my uh, top fifty prospects, which everyone should go read and subscribe to the Athletic to go read. Um, Duncan Robinson in the half court this year. Scored 578 points off of catch-and-shoot shots. The next closest player was Davis Bertans. Have you have you gotten down this far in my article yet to where you read this? No, like, I haven't. How, much, how many points do you think Davis scored uh, in the half-court off the catch this year? Like 300? Like yeah, it was like 369. Yeah. He literally scored 200 more points than any other player off the catch this season in the NBA. On jump shots. Another, and he had the best efficiency of any player in the top 20 in terms of volume. So, like, he had the most volume and was the most efficient. A, a couple other great Duncan Robinson stats. He took 543 pointers, 543, and 72 pointers this year. He Love only it. took 6% of his shots around the basket. And he, Chuck Duncan. And he only took 50, and he took 53 free throws all year. Made 91% of them. Love it. Duncan like, Robinson to, to have that shot profile to never get to the basket to never get to the line and to have sixty eight percent true shooting on on sixteen usage is bananas. Duncan Robinson is a god. <laughs> I love him so much, and it feels like a more attainable god, but not necessarily. I mean, you have like, to be really, no, no. Like he's six foot seven and a real like one of the best shooters in the world. Like and like people might think I'm like joking about this or like being facetious. I'm not. Duncan Robinson, it's legitimately the greatest thing in the world to me. <laughs> the Duncan Robinson is this good. You, I did not rank Duncan Robinson in my top 100 prospects because I was like, there's no fucking way. <laughs> like I was just like, there's no way. And two years later, he's literally the best shooter in the NBA. It is the greatest story on in the NBA this season. I it's love a, it so much. It's amazing. We can end it there. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his work, including the excellent Rookie Scale Ranking series at The Athletic. You can also listen to his Game Theory podcast and follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. 
such a such a wonderful guest, especially because I feel fully confident that we can go in different directions and follow each other out and back. Apologies, there were a little a couple areas in this where kind of sounded probably like we were talking over each other. The audio tracks got a little bit tight. We weren't, but it kind of got a little bit worse like that towards the end. I don't know why that happened. There's not really much that I can do to fix it. So hopefully it'll be better in future iterations. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can subscribe, download every episode in whatever podcast player we use, Apple, Spotify, whatever. Really do appreciate that. You can also spread the word. Word of mouth is very important. In-person, social media, whatever. We really do appreciate that. And leave a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. And... The biggest way you can support the show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code and get an awesome sign-up bonus. And, of course, tell them that you came from us. You can also check out my work. I've had a lot going on recently. Dunked on. Nate and I are still two days a week. We'll be ramping up when the season gets closer. And we did our full LaMelo Ball breakdown on, uh, I think it was on Tuesday. So you can listen to that. And then we will have a new episode up on Thursday night as well. And then... I have a lot of written work at The Athletic. It's really in two baskets. One is the solo off-season preview pieces that I'm writing. Uh, those are coming out about two a week, depending on the week. And then also the collaborative pieces that came up with Sam, because he is a part of those, along with Seth Partnow and Dave Dufour. Those are also at The Athletic, and we're doing two of those a week now th- through the Delete 8. And then after that, it will depend on when teams are eliminated. So lots of fun stuff going on there. I like how different those pieces are, even though they're sometimes on the same subject because we're covering the same teams. And I encourage you to check them both out. They're, I'm really proud of, of both of those. And you can, of course, check out Sam's great work as well. Real Jam Radio will be back next week, probably on the early side. Uh, if the guests that I have lined up if that holds, no guarantees that it will. That's why I don't tell you who it is until the episode is ready. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to reach out to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I will try to respond if I can. I'm not as great on that. I get tied up in other things, but I make sure it's go, go to a separate folder in my email. I read them every day and really do appreciate it. Appreciate if it's positive. Appreciate if it's negative because that helps make the show better. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.